Please take your Bibles. Let's go to Daniel. Daniel chapter 8. We started this chapter last time, and I was unable to get to some of the finer details that I had hoped to concerning the interpretation that Daniel receives from Gabriel. And remember from this chapter until the end of the book, the written language returns to Hebrew from verses are from chapter 2 and verse 4 through the end of chapter 7 it is written in Aramaic and the prophecies there the events there cover the world stage they cover the events that happen in Babylon and later uh, under the reign of, of Darius and so the, the Mede and now it's shifting back to Hebrew and I mentioned last time I believe This is because the focus of the rest of the book is going to be upon how this affects the Jews and the city of Jerusalem as they are under the rule of the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. Um, The Babylonians aren't mentioned again, and there's a reason for that. It's because they're going off the stage. There's really no point. We, we know at the beginning of this chapter it mentions Belshazzar is the, the third year of his reign, and that's all we really get left about the Babylonians. Um, nothing more needs to be said. And so last time I read verses 1 through 14 of this chapter. I want to read the second half tonight. Let's read verses 15 through 27. I apologize. I have a mouthful to say. I give you permission to sleep, and that's okay with me. We're going to get through this. It's, I'm going to throw a lot at you. But let's begin in verse 15. And it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning, then behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell upon my face. But he said unto me, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep on my face toward the ground. But he touched me and set me upright. And he said, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation. For at the time appointed, the end shall be. The ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up, and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper in practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. And he shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. And the vision of the evening and the morning which was told is true. Wherefore, shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days." And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days. Afterward, I rose up and did the king's business, and I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. 
Amen. So Daniel has received this vision of a ram and a goat. And we're told the ram represents Media and Persia, or the Medo-Persian Empire. And the goat represents Grecia, or the Greek Empire. We saw in verse 3 how the ram had two horns. One was higher than the other. And these two horns picture the Medes and the Persians who formed one kingdom over time. It says one, one horn was higher over time. The Persians would, would dominate. They would bring the Medes under control. And they would form one and just simply be called the Persians. And we saw in verse 5 how the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And that represented, represents Alexander the Great. And the goat broke the two horns of the ram and defeated it. Or we would say the Greeks defeated the Persians. But when the goat was strong, the notable horn was broken. Four horns come up in its place. And this is a picture of how the Greek empire was divided into four quarters after the death of Alexander. And of great importance to some, and our focus tonight, is how out of the four horns came forth a little horn who would wreak havoc upon the Jews and the temple and the city of Jerusalem. And so I want to come back to this tonight and consider this time period a little bit more closely, go a little bit more in depth, as this little horn really gets all the attention, most of the attention uh, here in this chapter. And, and for those who have studied this, you're probably in one of two camps, and, and that is you either hold this little horn to be Antiochus Epiphanes, or you believe this is the man of sin, the one we call the Antichrist. And I already said last time, I believe this little horn re is referring to Antiochus Epiphanes. I don't believe there's anything left in this chapter to be fulfilled. I do believe this little horn is a foreshadow of the Antichrist, but I don't believe it is a direct reference to the coming man of sin or the beast of Revelation 13. So how can there be so much variation in some of these interpretations in these prophecies why is the timing so much different? How can some suggest, as I am, that the little horn has been fulfilled already under Antiochus Epiphanes, while others are suggesting the little horn has its fulfillment at the end of this age under the Antichrist? Because that's a huge difference. There's a lot of time there that would pass. Um, there are even some, I discovered as I was studying this, who hold that this is referring to both Antiochus Epiphanes and the Antichrist, and what this one was saying was verses 9 through 14 refer to Antiochus, while verses 23 through 26 refer to the Antichrist. So, at a minimum, they would say there's a double fulfillment here. There's a fulfillment uh, near to Daniel's time, if you will, and then there would be another fulfillment down the road way off in the future. And in addition to some of these more commonly held positions, there are other opinions out there, some of which I think are a big stretch, for example, I was reading one book, and, and he said that he believes this is a reference to Islam gaining strength. I, I don't see that, but there, I'm just saying there's a lot of opinions out there. So this can become quite confusing for some that are trying to weed through this, and I realize some don't even care. But for those who study this kind of thing, it can be confusing sometimes uh, to, to see which option is right. And is it all fulfilled? Is there a near fulfillment before Christ 
first coming and then another fulfillment before his second coming? Or is this little horn only fulfilled in our future? I, I mentioned this last time, but the reason there are those who are pushing this fulfillment off into our future is because of the terminology we read in verses uh, 17 and 19. In verse 17, it says, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. And then verse 19 says, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation, for at the time appointed the end shall be. So I get it. I understand why people go there. But remember I was saying last time that is my opinion, just because we read of language that mentions the term the end, it doesn't necessarily mean it's in reference to the end of all things or the end of this age. And I hope to kind of show that a little bit tonight because I think this is where many get it wrong when they start to study some of these prophecies, especially those in the book of Daniel. And so I want to show you how this language in Daniel, it, it can and it does refer to something other than in time, uh, the end of this age. So let's break all this down a little bit more in depth. And I hope it will become clear on what I'm trying to say. So first, let's consider the origin of this little horn. I think it should be clear to all that this little horn rises out of the goat. I don't know any other way to see that. To me, that's absolutely clear. I don't know any other way to interpret it. After, Al <clears throat> after Alexander died and the Greek empire was divided into four quarters... Those, I said, they're represented by the four horns of verse 8. Notice uh, verse 9 again. It says, and out of one of them came forth a little horn. Clearly then, the little horn comes, out of the, comes forth out of the divided Greek empire. You say, well, yeah, I kind of see that. Well, some people are saying, no, chapter 7, the little horn, there it comes out of the Roman empire, so it must be Roman here. No, let's just let the Bible say what it says. It comes out of the divided kingdom. It comes out of the four horns. And so it's okay to have a little horn come out of the Romans. It's okay to have a little horn come out of the Greeks. I'll get to that a little bit later on. Now, what do we read in this interpretation? Verse 21 says, The goat is the king of Grecia. So we're clearly talking about the Greek empire. Verse 22 says, Four kingdoms shall stand up out of that nation. So which nation? The context still has to be Greece. So when it was divided, it was divided among Alexander's four generals. Well, four of his generals. And Cassander controlled the region of Macedonia. Lysimachus, I, I'm saying that wrong, I'm sure, controlled the region of Thrace. Seleucus controlled the region of Syria and eastward and Ptolemy controlled the region of Egypt southward. And we'll see in chapter, I'm bringing this up because we'll see in chapter 11 that of importance to Jerusalem is the Seleucids and the Ptolemies because they're going to have infighting between each other and Jerusalem's caught right in the middle of these two kingdoms fighting for power. And so it's going to affect the Jews, Jerusalem, the temple a lot with this Greek infighting. And all of this infighting is why the end of verse 22 mentions the Greeks would never be as strong as when Alexander ruled. Now, in, in verse 23, we read, And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, 
a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. And so this verse is a reference to the little horn. And we're told he will stand up in the time of their kingdom. Who is their kingdom? Contextually, it must still be the Greeks. So at some point toward the end of the Greek empire, there ought to be someone who arises that fits the bill for this little horn. Does Antiochus Epiphanes fit this description? There are some that say no, he doesn't because the Romans didn't fully conquer the Greeks until 31 B.C. And so they say, no, that's not close enough given Antiochus' rule of 175 to 164 B.C. Uh, I personally believe Antiochus easily fits this description, and here's why. Alexander died in 323 B.C., Alexander the Great. I don't even like calling him the Great, right? But he died in 323 B.C. Antiochus ruled the Seleucid kingdom, the one that would be to the north of Judea, from 175 to 164 B.C. And although the fighting between the Romans and the Greeks was nothing new, you go back and research history, there was a lot of battles taking place well before this. Uh, So even though infighting there or fighting between them was nothing new, the Roman takeover of the Greeks began in 146 B.C. And this is well documented in secular history. The Macedonian kingdom fell to the Romans in 148 Therefore, Antiochus most definitely fits the timing of the latter time of their kingdom since he ruled at a time that was only 16 years before the beginning of the end of the Greek Empire. So that's pretty close in my opinion. I still think it's close even if if we use 31, but whatever. Um, Who gets to judge what's close? You see what I'm saying? I mean, some of these interpretations, we just get all out of whack for what? I don't know. Whatever. Okay. So the, the, um, the origin and the timing of the little horn certainly fits Antiochus. In fact, knowing that he would be Greek and that he would be toward the end of the Greek kingdom, I'm puzzled as to why so many are looking for another fulfillment. Just my opinion. I don't know why so many are looking way off into the future to find the fulfillment for this little horn. And here's something I find interesting as well. The little horn of chapter 7 came up out of the Roman Empire. And the little horn in chapter 8 comes out of the Greek Empire. I think it is abundantly clear that these two little horns are arising out of two different empires. And yet what many are doing is they're trying to make these two little horns be one and the same. And you can't do that based on how the scriptures are worded if we're going to take them literally which is funny because I get blamed for not taking them literally. Anyway, just because the little horn of the Roman Empire and the little horn of the Greek Empire and the beast of the first part of Revelation 13 share commonalities, it doesn't mean they all have to refer to the same person. It's like we forget that Satan always uses the same tactics. He doesn't change. We're just weak enough to keep falling for it. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the heaven, or excuse me, under the sun. 
Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new. It hath been already of old time, which was before us. And so I just think we're seeing a repetition of Satan's tactics. He does the same thing, as God allows, of course. So next we read of this little horn in verse 9, that he waxed exceeding great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the pleasant land. And certainly Antiochus was successful toward the south. I'll say more about this in chapter 11. In fact, we'll, we'll really get into the weeds a little bit there. But even more is going to be said there about Antiochus. But Daniel 11.25 says, And he shall, this is speaking of Antiochus, And he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall forecast devices against him. So he was not only successful toward the south, but also toward the east. And this is a reference to when Antiochus would go into Persia, and he would go into the region on the east of the Euphrates River. And he made them become tribute to him. He was successful. And so he gained some of their money. And I know some of you are going to kill me for saying this, but that's okay. You can read about this uh, history in the apocryphal book of 1 Maccabees. I'm not saying it's inspired word of God. But the fact of the matter is the apocrypha is good reference for history. And so when you read the Maccabees, especially, you'll get a lot of what happened with Antiochus. We see how he would also wax exceedingly great toward the pleasant land. This is toward the land of Judea, which is also mentioned in Daniel 11. After Antiochus' first successful campaign in Egypt, we read in Daniel 11:28, Then shall he return into his land. He's, so Egypt was to the south, the Ptolemies. He's heading back north to the Seleucid kingdom. He shall return into his own land. To do so, you've got to go through the land of Judea. And his heart shall be against the holy covenant. And he shall do exploits and return to his own land. So he's going to stop along the way and he's going to stir up trouble in Jerusalem. And sure enough, what he ended up doing on that stop was he ransacked the temple. Uh, it was going to be far worse the next time around. But Antiochus, when it, he would go against Egypt again. But this time... He would not be as successful. He would go against um, the Ptolemies and he wanted to take Alexandria, but Rome got involved and they sent ships. Anyway, long story short, we'll get all that in chapter 11. Rome gets involved and they get to where he can't attack. Well, he has the poochie lip and he's upset about life. And when mad men get upset, they got to take it out on somebody. And so he's, he's ticked. And so he's making his way back because he wasn't going to be able to do his campaign against Egypt again. I don't even know where I'm at in my notes here. Anyway, he's mad. And so he's going to go back to Judea and he's going to cause even more problems. Verse 10 is where there are those who say, this can't refer to Antiochus Epiphanes because of the language used. I think verse 10 is figurative language to describe those in Judea who were standing for truth. It talks about the host of heaven and, and the, the host and of the stars. And so 
there's plenty of Bible verses that will support that idea. And if you... Anyway, he, what's happening here in the context is it just described he would be successful to the south, he would be successful to the east, and now it's just highlighting, in my opinion, it is highlighting that this is how he was successful in the pleasant land. And he is now going against Jerusalem, the Jews, the temple. Now, if you want to disagree with me on that, that's fine. Just know that I'm not alone in that opinion. Uh, for example, commentators Albert Barnes, Adam Clark, John Gill, Jameson Fawcett Brown, Matthew Poole, Matthew Henry, and even the Geneva footnotes and the, and the family Bible notes, they all agree with that interpretation. Verse 11, we see how Antiochus magnified himself even to the prince of the host. And by him, the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. There's some disagreement on who is meant by the prince of the host in the days of Antiochus. Some common opinions are a man named Onias, and he was the high priest in Jerusalem at the time who was actually standing for truth. Uh, some suppose it refers to Judas Maccabeus, uh, also nicknamed the Hammer. Amen. That's, that's what they used to call me in high school. Amen. The Hammer. And, and so uh, he led a revolt against Antiochus. And perhaps the most common opinion is this is speaking of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I currently believe this last opinion uh, makes the most sense that it refers to God because of the interpretation that we read in verse 25, where it says, and he shall stand up against the prince of princes. So that's my opinion there. Now, how would Antiochus have magnified himself even to the prince of the host? And how did he magnify himself in his heart, as verse 25 says? Well, for starters, he took upon himself the title Epiphanes, which if you don't know, it means God manifest. Antiochus believed he was Zeus incarnate. Now you talk about crazy. And so he took upon himself deity, he tried to, and so he added Epiphanes. Side note, they nicknamed him Epimenes, which means madman. But anyway, he even set up a statue of Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem when he was sacrificing a pig upon the altar. And Daniel 11.31 says, And they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength and shall take away the daily sacrifice. Which leads to verse 11, this next statement here. And by him the daily sacrifice was taken away. The daily sacrifice was the daily offering of a lamb every morning and evening. God commanded it in the law. And it was to be a continual burnt offering is the terminology that is used in the Old Testament. And it was to remind them to never lose sight of the coming sacrifice of the Lamb of God, our Lord and Savior. Exodus 29.42 says, This shall be a continual burnt offering, offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak there unto thee. So this is a very big deal when you start hearing that the daily sacrifice is going to be taken away. In fact, 
in, in verse 13, when Daniel, he, he sees one saint speaking to another saint, which many believe is this is an angel speaking to an angel. I don't know, it just says one saint to another saint, so I'm content with that. But they're asking, how long shall the be, how long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? Even those in this vision are asking, how long? They're greatly troubled by the fact that the daily sacrifice is going to be taken away. And the answer for how long is given in verse 14. It says, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, some are of the opinion that 2,300 days is up for debate. Here's why. The Hebrew word for days is not your typical word for days. This is two words that make up the, the words morning and evening or dusk and dawn. And so there is a thought that the 2300 days is referring to 2300 mornings and evenings. Therefore, it wouldn't necessarily be 2300 24 hour days, but it'd be 1150 24 hour days. So instead of 6.38 years, it would be 3.19 years. It, it's an interesting thought because of the interpretation in verse 26. Remember, we're getting the interpretation. And verse 26 says, And the vision of the evening and the morning, which was told is true. And the Hebrew words for evening and morning in verse 26 are the same two words used for days uh, there in verse 14. Now, whatever. This was meant to be a comfort of sorts. Imagine hearing this. Evil was going to take place. The morning and evening sacrifice was going to be taken away. And, and God here is letting... Uh, them know evil will not prevail forever. There is a set time. And so it was to be a comfort. And when the time came for this prophecy, it would make sense to them. And they would know. And they would go to the they would know the book of Daniel and they would understand this. This is why Daniel is told, shut up the vision, for it shall be for many days. Seal it up. Preserve it, because the day's coming when your people can take hope that all hope is not lost. Why? Because of this. Seal it up. Keep it. Because when this is happening, we need to know. By the way, we have revelation. And we know. Bad times may come, but God's going to win. Whoop! So, taking away the daily sacrifice, as the end of verse 11 relates... Um, it was, in essence, Antiochus casting down the sanctuary. He didn't literally destroy it to the ground as the Romans did, but he profaned it and he made the temple and the temple system of no effect. He rendered it useless from honoring the true God of heaven. Next we see in verse 12 that an host was given him against the daily sacrifice. I think this likely is a reference to the fact that many in Jerusalem actually followed after Antiochus. They were complicit. They didn't resist. They were happy to take his bribes. Remember, he, 
he, he would do things by flatteries and craft and policy. And, and a lot of them followed right in, in line with his sinfulness. Daniel 11.32, it speaks of the Jews who would do wickedly against the covenant and would be corrupted by Antiochus's flatteries. And I think this also indicates how Antiochus would take over the priesthood, which he did. And he installed his own wicked priest instead. In fact, I believe it was Onias' brother Jason that Antiochus ended up putting in his place. And later I think he put his brother... Anyway, it's a mess. And he's, he's doing what he wants to do, Antiochus is. And, and this statement may just be as simple as he defeated them and, and it was a host of them. He, he defeated a host of the Jews. Or as verse 24 says, he shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. Now, I'm trying to move fast because i got so much I'm trying to get through. We, we also see in verse 12 how he cast down the truth to the ground. And Antiochus literally, at the temple, took the words of God, the scrolls and all of the word of God, and he cast it down to the ground and he burnt it. And he had no respect for God's word. In fact... Not only did he burn all the copies he could find, but afterwards, if he found you with a copy of the Word of God, you would be killed as well. And you have to understand, Antiochus Epiphanes was one of the most wicked men to ever live on the face of the earth. And like I said earlier, he erected an idol of Zeus in the temple in in direct disrespect to uh, Judea and Jerusalem and the Jews. And he altered... He offered a a pig, which if you know anything about the law, I mean, he's just blaspheming them. And he offers a pig upon the altar. In addition to that, he outlawed temple worship and circumcision. And he was so wicked that if a mother had her child circumcised, he would have the mother killed and the son. I mean, this guy was just wicked. And we see at the end of verse 12 that he practiced and prospered. And I said last time, that means he did according to his will. And whatever he wanted to do, he did. Verse 24 says, His power shall be mighty, but not by his own. Either this is saying God empowered him, or as I stated last time, this could just be a reference to how he was a crafty politician. Because verse 25 says, Through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. We also read in verse 25 how by peace he shall destroy many. So he was crafty. I'm trying not to get too deep into all this because I know it's coming up later in chapter 11, but he wasn't even the rightful heir to the kingdom. He took it over by flatteries. In fact, it was an infant. I can't remember if it was his nephew. I can't remember what the relation was to him off the top of my head. But he ended up having him killed, and he took the kingdom. And so he was just crafty enough through flattery and betrayal, and he got power. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, recorded how Antiochus, quote, came up to Jerusalem and pretending peace got possession of the city by treachery. End quote. And we'll talk about that more in chapter 11. So I'm just saying, this was a ruthless man. And I believe he was, in fact, the little horn who arose out of the latter end of the Greek empire. He fits the description so well in my mind. I'm surprised we're looking for another fulfillment. I, like I said, I do agree he's a foreshadow of the coming man of sin. I just don't think this is a direct reference. Now, the last thing I want to cover, why would God allow this? 
Why would God allow this king, who is called a vile person in chapter 11, to come so violently against the Jews and the temple system? Well, I'll tell you, it's no different than the reason why God allowed the Assyrians to come against the house of Israel. It's no different than why God allowed the Babylonians to come against the house of Judah. It was no different than why God allowed the Romans to destroy the city and the temple and the people in 70 A.D. Notice in verse 12, it says, And host was given him against the daily sacrifice, look at this, by reason of transgression. Notice in verse 23, And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full. Now, you can disagree with me. Some say this is just simply referring to the wickedness of Antiochus. I believe, and I believe strongly, this refers to the transgression of the Jews. Matthew Henry wrote this, quote, They filled up the measure of their iniquity, and they were ripe for this destruction. And, and you should know, as I stated earlier, there were many Jews who were complicit with Antiochus's actions. But the fact is, many had already departed from God well before these days. Just consider the book of Malachi, the last book in our Old Testament. They are the last words from God to Israel before He went silent for 400 years. And it was during that time of silence that this was taking place. And you should really read the entire book of Malachi if you want to get all the details. I'm just going to give you a few verses here. Listen to these. Malachi chapter 1 verses 6 through 8. A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If I then be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priest that despise my name. And ye say, wherein have we despised thy name? Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And ye say, wherein have we polluted thee? And that ye say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And ye offer the blind for sacrifice. Is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee? Or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts. And so God would go on to say in chapter 1, you've profaned my name. And then he says in Malachi 2, 2, if you will not hear and if you will not lay it to heart to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yea, I've cursed them already because ye did not lay it to heart. Malachi 2, verses 8 and 9. But ye are departed out of the way. You've caused many to stumble at the law. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways, but have been impartial, or excuse me, have been partial in the law. Chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Will a man rob God? Yea, ye've robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. And God said if they would, if they would have honored him, he would have rebuked the devourer for their sake. And yet we don't see that here because they refused. Malachi 3.14, last one. Ye have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? Here's the bottom line there comes a point when God has had enough. And God says, it's full. I, I can't take any more. And, and God will take action against sinners. Genesis 15, 16. 
but in the fourth generation they shall come hither again. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. But once they're full, God's going to take action. In Matthew 23, i got to hurry up. I'm just going to read the, the bold i got here. Uh, it's, it's, it's saying that ye fill up the measure of your fathers, the sinfulness of your fathers. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? That's Matthew 23, 31-33. 1 Thessalonians 2, 16, it talks about the Jews and how they would forbid people to speak to the Gentiles. And it says, to fill up their sins always, for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. When sin is full, God brings a terrible judgment. Isaiah 42, verses 24 and 25. Who gave Jacob for a spoil or, and, and Israel to the robbers? Did not the Lord, He against whom we have sinned? For they would not walk in His ways, neither were they obedient unto His law. Therefore He hath poured un, upon Him the fury of His anger and the strength of battle, and it hath set Him on fire round about. Yet He knew not, and it burned Him. Yet He laid it not to heart." And this is where, my friends, the end time language comes in. I've already stated this is not referring to the end of the age. But this is a reference to when God had enough, He was going to bring it to an end, and He was going to pour out His judgment. And now, in my opinion, verse 19 makes a lot more sense. Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation. For at the time appointed, the end shall be. And you're welcome to disagree. That's my opinion. I got to shut her down and I don't want to. So let me just quickly tell you. Last time I mentioned how... Which one came first? The ram? The ram had power. None could deliver, but he was defeated. The goat had power. None could deliver, but he was defeated. The little horn comes up and he's got power, but he's broken without hand. God's in full control. Amen? Amen. And, and no powers can stand against him. We get that. And, and so we said that last time he gets the final victory. We may have to live under ruthless leaders at times, but that's okay. It's only for a season. Uh, for tonight, let me just ask you real quick, are you giving glory that's due to God's name? Are you in Christ? Or are you filling up your sins until God has no choice but to say, I've had enough. And now He's forced to take action and bring swift destruction upon you in His indignation. You have to be found in Him. You must be born again. And if you are, take comfort. Your sins have been washed away. All in the blood of Christ. Don't ever lose sight of how Jesus took God's wrath in your place. What a Savior. Now, I want to be clear as I close. This isn't to suggest that as a believer, if you decide to do things your own way, that your disobedience won't bring you into bondage. And that it won't result in God's judgment. No, God can and still does bring chastisement to His wayward children. So please, please don't cast truth down to the ground. And so I hope this chapter is not only uh, bringing comfort to realize that God's in complete control, but I hope it encourages us to live in obedience to God so that we may enjoy His blessings. Thank you so much for your patience. Let's pray.